0: Hi everybody and welcome to Glam City. My name is Kira Lindsay and I'm a historian based at the Australian Centre for Public History. On Glam City we speak to the hard-working people who are in Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. Today we have the esteemed historian and fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities, Professor Anne Kurtois, with us to explore the idea of creative histories. Can history be creative? If so, when, where, how and why? If all history is creative at all stages of the process, why would we need this term creative? Well, this is a question that myself and Anna Clark from the ACPH have been asking, along with a couple of colleagues from Creative Writing. and, uh, we're interested in this project because we think that there is a particularly creative impulse that often expresses itself in the work of Australian historians that has some distinctive and important features that if we spend more time giving attention to might celebrate the work that we do and also encourage and empower even more creativity. One of those people who has been encouraging great creativity in the work of Australian history for a long time is Anne. Um, she has done this not only with the topics that she's engaged with and the methods that she's used and how she's communicated this in her work, but also her commitment to reflecting upon writerly histories and that vexed question that comes up of the relationship between history and fiction. So Anne's going to um, be a wonderful person for us to explore these ideas with, part of this bigger project that I'm working on with my colleagues. But before we get there, um, you'll forgive me, I hope, fellow listeners, if I just take a bit of a moment to provide you with some broader context for the way that this word creative histories is being used because it's one of those questions that um, provokes questions. You know, is does this term use? Why do you need it? In fact, it's getting used overseas already. The University of Bristol have their own team within their um, history department and they have a conference that they run regularly. It's also used in North America predominantly to attract students to shrinking history courses um, and to encourage them to produce end products that are a little more unusual and creative, say podcasts, short films, etc. etc. But in the Bristol context, um, and I'm collaborating with um, the Bristol team on this project, they recognise that creative histories has become an important way of thinking or describing work that is being produced in response to these kind of ideas. The stuttering of the linguistic turn? Well, what does that mean? I think it kind of means that as we've started to reflect and question the way that we write and how we write, that all sorts of new questions have come up. Um, That creative history may also be seen as a kind of new way of solving the problems associated with archival silences. It might also help us with that kind of moral and political imperative of writing about those who are underrepresented in the record and hard to recover. Of course, this kind of creative writing helps us get our work out into trade publications and therefore increase our impact so we can tick boxes from um, the academy. And it's a way of talking about all those different mediums through which history is communicated, be that the glam sector or in film and podcasts. But if all history is creative at all stages, be that research, analysis, argument, medium, tone, register, why does it matter Why would we want to put this word creative in here to describe a type of work that people like Anne, a generation of historians, who made a huge contribution, I think, to encouraging young buds like myself to experiment um, with their approaches. So I guess there's another piece of context in here that has a UTS-specific context, and that is um, Kate Grenville's PhD, which she did at UTS, which produced... um, the book Secret River, the historical novel The Secret River in 2006, which um, she then elicited quite a strong response from a community of historians who felt that she was kind of perhaps going into... Um, very delicate historical territory. Inga Clendenin, as you know, will say that she felt that there needed to be a big ravine between history and fiction that ne'er the twain should meet. But in fact, ever since Clendenin insisted upon that ravine, the truth is that people have been coming up with increasingly hybrid solution, that there is now a kind of veritable traffic. So much so that we might even say that what was once a ravine is now an estuary, where the rivers of history and fiction often intermingle, enter. Anne Courtois, (laughs) upon the ship of her own historical craft. I want to just share two definitions that currently exist around creative history to get you thinking about these and which you think might work better. The first one is one we developed at... um, at UTS, creative history is an experimentation with form and function, method and medium that pushes disciplinary and generic boundaries for the purpose of problem solving, politics or greater public engagement. Well, I took this to Bristol and they came back to me with this. We played around with it for a day or so. They think that creative history is in fact more about working with the archives in a way that experiments with method and medium to push disciplinary and generic boundaries, that's all coming up the same way, but for the purpose of crafting a past that allows for deeper truths, more aesthetic pleasures and more engaging histories. And what I love about this second definition is that they introduce pleasure into the story and with that, I think, comes play. Could we, in this earnest Profession of history, as it sometimes is, introduce a little more pleasure and play to our work. Anne, perhaps rather than me speak, you could introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you think about what I've just spoken about. <laughs> Well
1: thank you. I'm Anne Kurthois and um, this is a really interesting conversation for me because partly because we're here at UTS talking about these issues which is really where I first got engaged in them myself and for me really these issues arose from the question of history public history, history for the community, um, conversations between academic historians and readers anywhere and also between academic historians and film producers, radio producers, um, creative fiction, um, all sorts of other um, contexts for doing history. And in the late 80s, um, I was involved in setting up a graduate program in Applied History, which was meant to do exactly that, to bring questions of environment and heritage and museums into UTS, which didn't have those things at the time. And what we did have was communication, so we had a lot of film and radio and writing, creative writing classes. So bringing those concerns together um, in the late 80s, and part of doing that was to teach a course called Writing History, which is what I did in the late 80s and early 90s. And that's when a lot of the issues that you've just outlined, had I had to think about for the first time. And there wasn't a lot to help. Because I was trying to teach a course about how do you write history, which historians don't or didn't then normally teach. They teach content. They teach about history, historical questions and analytical problems and so on. And and writing, people teaching writing were very often are teaching fictional writing or they're teaching business writing or they weren't teaching historical writing as such. So trying to kind of um, figure out, well, what is historical writing and how, what are its limits and what are its kind of possibilities? So that's where I started from teaching about writing for um, various publics. And I suppose one of my big um, concerns all along has been that you write differently for different purposes and different people. And in my own work, I would say some of it's very academic and for a fairly specialised audience and some of it's much more general and for a much um, wider audience, such as the book on the freedom right. So... So thinking a lot about um, questions of audience and that r- raises questions of narration and analysis and language and, and forms of address and all those kinds of writing questions. So that's where I've come from. Yeah. <laughs> um and I think because it was at UTS where we were teaching a lot of media production at the time, and all of that's changed, you know, technologically since, but that forced you to think not only about writing in a sort of, for print media, but also for audiovisual media of all kinds. And so it was opening up questions of um, writing in that sense to a, to script writing or um, whatever else
0: it might be. And placed you in a position where you were using the past to collaborate in storytelling. With- with people from different disciplines, or and um, with different interests in communicating and different audiences,
1: absolutely. Um, and many of the students were people who came from from museums or from filmmaking, like documentary filmmakers, or um, some of them were um, independent writers. So those those students were bringing their concerns. How could they tell history? to non-history audiences. That's really what they were interested in. How could they communicate to people who might know much history um, or hadn't been interested in history before but who would be interested in a particular kind of story or a particular issue? Um, So it was in that context, really, which is really about communication with a broad audience that um, I think the questions of writing and creative histories comes up. Now, of course, after that, there's a whole lot of other things have happened and I think one of them was the whole engagement with the linguistic turn that you mentioned and with the question of postmodernism that sort of really dominated a lot of discussion through the 90s. Um, and I got very involved in that and, you know, um, read way beyond what historians would normally want to read in questions of postmodernism and narrative theory and questions of truth and all of those kinds of things and speaking position questions. Um, so to me, um, that although we don't kind of engage with that kind of theory so directly anymore, a lot of the thinking that we did then has influenced the way we think about history and writing and Um, Questioning the authority of the historian, being aware that the way some people write as if, you know, the voice of authority, as if there's only one possible way to tell a story or to read an archive. So being aware that, no, there are multiple ways, but they're not endlessly multiple ways. And I think trying to get that distinction clear in our heads was quite a project there for a while because a lot of the critique of postmodernism was as if it said anything goes and you make up your own story. We're not saying that at all, um, but we are saying, I would say, um, being aware of the multiple ways that um, people do read the same archive or do tell um, a given story and that um, one reason that you have to revisit Certain kinds of history over time is that the present changes and that will change the questions that you ask and that will change the way you want to answer it so mm. um, so all those questions um happened, and then for me since then, lots of other um, things, but particularly engagement with Settler colonial history in the like this century, really, and questions of relations between settlers and Aboriginal people, but also relations between governments and um, civil society, and you know all these questions that are so hard to to you know interpret. They're so embedded in current difficulties and issues and challenges. Um, so writing questions then come up in that context as well of who you're communicating with and why you're telling those stories and, and that's very very current current debates now Around, you know, Bruce Pascoe's work or whatever. Very current debates about um, what kinds of stories people are telling about that past.
0: So, you also played a seminal role in women's history in Australia, setting up the Women's History um, School at ANU. How did um, that set of scholarly and political ideas inform historical practice for you? Well, I think the whole
1: feminist take on history was very influential for me. It was really it comes out of the 70s, the emergence of women's liberation and a new sort of second wave feminism, which was con- constantly asking questions of the way history had been done thus far and raised issues about where we're learning about what men did, what did women do, we don't know. And we were postgraduate students at this stage. We had done a lot of history, but we knew very little about women's history. But I think the other thing there too was that People saw history as a way of answering big questions about why were there such gender differences? Where, do, do gender in, where does gender inequality come from? Is it universal? Uh, does it have to be universal? How can it change? Really big questions. What's the relationship between gender relations and class relations and race relations and those kinds of questions? So when I was um, setting up the Women's Studies course in at ANU um, in 76... Um, I think. <laughs> um,
0: a historian
1: that... who can't remember her dates. You've heard it here, <laughs> yeah, ladies and gentlemen. Right? <laughs> I, um, um, they had those kinds of big questions um, in my mind. And, you know, it took, it was, again, it was a teaching process, mm-hmm. um, setting up courses to try and think through some of those issues and to try and teach history in a way that um, engage with these big new questions. I think then the... What that does is ask for a different kind of history in terms of content um, and sort of later really was addressing, well, that might require different kinds of history in terms of form and modes of address. Um, for instance, um, very biographical forms of history, mm-hmm. tracing women who'd been forgotten in history and trying to recover their story. But beyond that, um, in, in a later, more of a gender kind of dimension to history, questions of masculinity and femininity and so on. Mm. So for me, that has always influenced my work even when it doesn't seem to be the focus mm. and I think that's what happens with the feminist thing that you might be talking about something else really I mean my most recent work was a lot of it was about Aboriginal policy and government policy and it and you're studying men in parliament talking um, so you're not looking at what women are doing very directly but nevertheless the gender dimensions of Um, Aboriginal policy and of settler-Aboriginal relations are kind of in your mind and they're part of the story, even if they're not the immediate focus. They have to be there. You can't think about um, dispossession and exploitation and all of that without thinking about those gender dimensions. And I think the other point is that a lot of feminist historians retained their desire to communicate with a non-academic audience. So although they might have been working in the academy, they were conscious that they wanted to write books that um, people outside the academy read or people other than students read. I mean, students read, but other people as well. So so that desire to communicate was was an important part of feminist yeah. history.
0: You're listening to Glam City on 2SCR 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SCR.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with the support of 2SCR and today we're incredibly lucky to be talking with Anne Courtois on the topic of creative history. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you touches on the fact that you use the first person in freedom rights and that um, when you've reflected on that, you've talked about the influence of um, Pierre Nora and the idea of ego histoire. Mm So I'd like to open that question, use that as a question to ask you about some of the intellectual or scholarly or political ideas, you've outlined quite a few, that shaped your work in particular. Well, you mentioned um,
1: Ego Histoire, which I think has been important in more recent times to think about the relation between a personal experience and personal history and broader histories and using the personal to explore broader issues and also to sort of tell a story about those broader issues in an engaging way that has a a focus.
0: I just realised that, and maybe we should not just use the obscure French word, but explain (laughs) what that term actually means. it just means I-history. So it it just means
1: um, a history that the writer um, has lived through, um, or it could be a family history, a history that is connected to that person, Mm. um, and using that personal either experience or family history to... Um, explore questions about time it really came out of Pierre Nora's idea of um, ego history or eye history um, in France where he was really wanting encouraging French historians to to talk about the second world war and the resistance or the, um, whatever happened in France during the second World War which was a very difficult period and so getting people to historians to reflect on the fact they had lived through this themselves mm. how could they use that um, personal experience to reflect on his very important historical events.
0: And and behind that impulse is a kind of bigger momentum, which is um, a kind of acknowledgement that the ideal of empirical, objective, detached history is kind of, in his mind, coming to an end. And we need to recognise that history is personal and subjective, Exactly. We should put the first person pronoun in there to be honest about those partialities. That's right, and to
1: sort of foreground um, the fact that it is personal and to foreground your own position and concerns, not in a heavy-handed way. Some, I think sometimes people do it in a very heavy-handed way. Mm. You know, I'm a white feminist, and it's kind of very off-putting and it doesn't help the story. But to, to, to But nevertheless, to foreground... Your own background and concerns, so that the listener or the reader can kind of knows um, can interpret what you're saying themselves. They can draw conclusions because you've laid it all out there. I don't do everything I do that way. Like Mm. it's not the only way to do history, and some things I do are much more conventional um, kinds of history. But for the Freedom Ride project, which was writing a history of an event I had been involved in, it it raised those questions very directly and I struggled a lot with what was the historian and, and what was the participant or the you know the memoirist if you like and how did I get those things together and it wasn't until after I'd finished that book that I encountered the idea of Ego Histoire or I History which would have helped mm. because it kind of articulated that question and made it okay mm. whereas when I was doing it I was thinking you know um, am I undermining my um Credibility as a historian by talking about these personal things, Mm. um, or alternatively, am I sort of weighing down my personal story by all this extra research?
0: So that was a moment of creative license for you, (laughs) yeah. And um, you know, we use that a lot now. And I was reading something in preparation for today that was saying that, in fact, um, there are more Australian historians who are um, who write memoirs and more biographies written by Australian historians than any other type of academic, which means that there's a high level of mm. reflexivity that mm. is mm. has become innate to historical practice in Australia. It's true. I think it was a guy called Jeremy Popkin mm. who... Um
1: first pointed that out, I remember going to a seminar that he gave in at ANU quite a long time ago now, and he was giving a, a draft of one of his chapters, I think, which was on his Australian chapter maybe, hmm. um, and pointing out that this was unusually high, and I don't think the historians there realised that until he pointed it out comparatively. So it does, it does show, I mean, I think it's part of a, of a strong... Concern with history in Australian society, generally you mightn't think so, but really history in terms of um, books and films and everything is very, a lot of consumption of history in Mm. Australia, a lot of interest in history, not necessarily school history or Mm. university history, but history in the community.
0: Now, I just read this fantastic article that you wrote about history and Harry Potter, which um, I'm sure our listeners are going to love. And in that, you quote um, Bernardino Croce from a 1917 essay that he wrote called "History and Chronicle," where he said that um, a, hist- a past deed or event must vibrate in the soul of the historian. When I read this, I kind of almost wanted to jump up in the air, in the air and cheer because you you introduce with you know, some of the deeper resonance that drive historical practice. So can you talk about that and maybe some of the Harry Potter ideas that excited you?
1: Well, and and I think also um, John Docker and I talk about this also in his History Fiction. So the idea that the distinction between chronicle and history and what he's talking about at that point is if you have questions from the present, that are animating the historian or animating the reader, um, it's alive. And if they're not there, if those questions aren't there or the interest isn't there, the documents just sink into sort of... They become dead documents. They become mere, what he would say, mere chronicle. Um, And so history is about... um, in a sense, dragging out of the, the potential from the documents um, in terms of current concerns. So it always has to live in the present. And I think that's true. Like, I've noticed, having done history for a long time, certain questions... Um, become very um, alive questions that everyone's worrying about at a certain mm. time. Trigger and, points
0: almost. Yeah, yeah and then
1: they kind of die away you know people have talked about that for a fair bit and they sort of disappear mm. a bit and attention uh, turns elsewhere and so that history sort of goes dormant although it can always come back. Or you know. well,
0: the archive becomes kind of dormant and the analogy that you use from Harry Potter is um, Professor Triggs's boring classes where everyone constantly falls asleep because yeah. of his somnolent voice. Versus yeah. the pensive? is, um, is uh, That's right. Uh, well, there's that. Um, but the, the bit
1: I particularly remember from that too is the role of Hermione in the Harry Potter novels because she's the one who reads and thinks about the past in order to find out something you need to know in the present. So she's not just doing it. It's her – I mean, the three of them. Harry and Ron and Hermione, they've got a problem they have to solve. They have to learn about Voldemort or they have to do whatever it is they have to do. Um, and she's the one constantly using historical knowledge or going, um, yeah, using whatever technique you can to, if you go back, you can go forward. That's the right. sort of idea yep. that I kind of felt was running right through the Harry Potter particularly the last few novels in the series. They're very much about going back in order to go forward.
0: Yeah but Rowling doesn't just make a distinction between dead and living histories she also makes kind of distinctions between history and memory it seems that are quite rich and then ways to read the archive and interrogate them Actually that's true and like for
1: instance um, different kinds of knowledge some of it's magical knowledge and some of it is you know Reading old newspapers, just what historians do. So all these different techniques. Um, so you've got these magical techniques, but you've got quite ordinary, everyday techniques as well. And they use all of them. And at one stage, I think they've 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 got a kind of um, pirate radio um, thing. They you know they're learning from that or communicating through that. And you know, in other words, it, I found it very. Um, A kind of like what is it like a story about history in Mm. lots of ways, Um, and the other dimension uh, is is the sort of racial dimension too between the the magical world and the the muggle world. And
0: she's definitely um, weaving that kind of eugenics ideas through her story in order to remind us about. The weight of that in the now yeah and I so so it's funny when I wrote that
1: um, article um, you know I've had quite a lot of response from people particularly people who actually read Harry Potter as a child and have grown up and you know really responded to it but actually when I wrote it um, and you know sent it I submitted it to a journal got you know quite fierce negative <laughs> readers reports by people who didn't get it at all from the professor Triggs. <laughs> just didn't get it and I think were people who hadn't read the novels and that was the other thing how could it uh, communicate with people who hadn't read the novels because the people who have responded very quickly mm. but the people who haven't it was a slightly different um, story although I wanted to communicate with them as well and say well through this popular literature that lots you know millions have. Children are reading. There's quite quite important issues to do with history and its and its value
0: mm. um, being communicated. And in your book, is history fiction? With John Docker, you um, coined the phrase "history's doubleness" to describe the kind of dance, the negotiated relationship, the cosmic dance, shall we say, between history and fiction. And um, I wanted to ask you where you were with that in terms of the way that literature and history access or can communicate different truths. About the past, I, I think we say something like, "I mean, his, this is um, history is
1: both an art and as and a, we didn't wouldn't say a science, but mm-hmm. has a rigorous set of protocols that you must observe when you're using materials." Um, I think the the art part of it is what we've been talking about a lot: the question of narration, but also the creation of a sense of character, of plot, of drama, of um, questions about. Necessity or openness, you know, versus openness and possibility, all that kind of art, you know, um, the art that a a novelist would um, want to use to drag, you know, draw people into the story. Historians want to do that as well, and they have certain constraints. But they also have the desire to communicate. So, the art part is about communication and making it exciting, wanting to know what happened next, or if you know what happened next because you do in history. How did that get to there? How did you get from A to B? How did that? How did that ending mm. come about? Mm. Um, but this the sort of um, the more the rigorous side of it is about the limitations of of being connected to an archive of, of which there are gaps. There are things you want to know that are just not there mm. and how do you deal with that issue and I think that one I mean one way is the way um, that you know you've worked in yourself about um, working in a period you know a period and um, working with characters and creating that. Um, there are other ways of doing it. Some of it's just being very reflective about the gaps in the record um, and being open about the gaps, not trying to sort of gloss them over mm. and just saying, well, you know, we don't know this or we do know that and perhaps this and perhaps that mm-hmm. and perhaps, you know, being open about the fact that we don't know everything we want to know when we, right. we're trying to do a history.
0: I wonder if those of you who are listening today are getting a sense as I am of how innately creative you must be as a historian by listening to Anne talk because I think Anne, for me, is saying that it's being creative as a historian is not just something that is expressed in what comes out, the final product, but actually how alert you are, how responsive and alive you are to... Um, the materials, the propositions, the challenges of the moment and the world that you live in right now, there's a kind of hyper-awareness that is necessary. I think that's true and, and just to
1: give an example, one one project I've been writing but it's not finished um, is part of a, a book on Rottnest Island in Western Australia which is has got this very complex history but part of its history is as an Aboriginal prison And part of that story is about the superintendent of the prison. Now, I've written a chapter on the superintendent, so a very uh, negative character who has a reputation of being very harsh. And Mm -hmm. so to me, writing about um, a negative character, um, a prison governor, um, I've never done anything remotely like that. I like writing about, you know, activists and so on. So that project, in quite... A very different kind of narration and a different kind of research, and um, a lot of lot of detailed research into his family and his origins, and um, his wife and his children as well, and his his functioning as a superintendent, mm. and the disciplinary procedures that he eventually faced. So, so, um, what I'm really saying is, yeah, each time you take on a project that's important, I think the question of Aboriginal People in prison is a huge one now. Um, so it's got a modern resonance, but it also requires its own kind of historical narration. Part of what's behind that project is um, how did this happen? Why did we, you know, Noongar and other Aboriginal people have to go through this? So so how did it happen? Well, there's a whole big story, of course, but looking at one individual and, yeah, as a rounded, as a person and a rounded person with a complex history himself... just helps give some understanding of how it did happen.
0: And um, we're kind of rounding up now, and um, I want to ask you a question about what you're doing at the moment. I think you're working on the amazing American singer Paul Roberson um, and his visit to Australia in 1960, Um, and that you are continuing to work on history, fiction, memory and writing. But as a way of finishing up, I want to see if we can introduce the ideas of pleasure, Problem solving and play into the work that you're doing. How is that? How is problem solving, pleasure, and play coming up in your history work in those projects? Well, I think in the Robeson
1: project, um, well, the pleasure is that he's a very famous singer with a very, very, very famous singer, but who had lost a lot of uh, following in the Cold War context um, because of his. Um, well, he's very left-wing and kind of association with the Communist Party, although he wasn't in the Communist Party. So he's arriving in a Cold War context, but he's at the same time attracting huge audiences because of his singing. There's a lot of conflicting um admiration for Robeson for his politics or for his singing and there's people criticizing him so trying to capture that moment and which meant so much to the people who heard him through, i know through the oral histories and through other th- sort of research and um, people who heard him or met him, never forgot it. Um, in nineteen, and that happened in nineteen sixty. The the instance that people know most about is the opera house that he was the first person to sing. Um, it was actually at the opera house as it was being built, so it was. Um, and people know that often. Um, and the the film of that moment is mm. fantastic. I mean, here he is singing to all these workers, nineteen sixty in the opera house, which doesn't open till seventy three, so it's really really early. Um, So I suppose I wanted to get that mix of the pleasure side of it as well as the the questions of tension and problem and difficulty because of the Cold War context. But the other thing too is his impact on the Aboriginal protest movement. Um, And he keeps, as he goes, continues around Australia, more and more he starts addressing um, the the situation of Aboriginal people. And so there's a political um, side to that as well. Um, So for me, the challenge in that book is to get across the pleasure of people um, listening to him or meeting him. um, In some ways, the the difficult part, the activist part, the political side, um, and to get all that into a kind of, hopefully, you know, I want it to be an engrossing engrossing narrative. Um, And it's a tour. So it starts in Brisbane and goes around the country and ends in Perth. So there's that road movie aspect as well
0: wonderful and which beautifully bookmarks your own career having started off with the freedom rides which was also a tour that um brought to the surface social tensions Mm. the tensions between conflicting politics a play between Mm. social and political ideas of the period well i hope that you have had some pleasure today. I have <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and also our listeners too in what has been such a delightful and rich and satisfying conversation. So, oh, Thank you, I've, I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> thank you very much and that brings us to a close for Glam City for today. If you'd like to hear more, please head to the 2SCR website which is 2 Would you believe it? And you can also search for us on your favourite podcast app. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SCR 107.3. If you want to get in touch, you can email us, please do, at glamcity at 2SCR.com. Thank you, Anne, wonderful Anne, for what you've contributed to Australian history um, over your incredible career, spanning more than 40 years and for today. And before we go, I'd like to... Um, to acknowledge that 2 exists in a land which was once known as Black Blackwattle Creek, which is the land of the Gaddi people, the people from below, the Gaddical people of the Eora Nation who have lived here for millennia and uh, who's, who continue to make this a learning space, a space of ideas and, and creativity, um, particularly Elders past, present and emerging.